you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. My heart sank within me as I saw these ominous preparations, and yet I was held by the fascination of horror, and I could not take my eyes from the strange spectacle. A man had entered the room with a bucket of water in either hand, another followed with a third bucket. They were laid beside the wooden horse. The second man had a wooden dipper, a bowl with a straight handle, in his other hand. This he gave to the man in black. At the same moment, one of the varlets approached with a dark object in his hand, which even in my dream filled me with a vague feeling of familiarity. It was a leathern filler. With horrible energy he thrust it, but I could stand no more. From the Leather Funnel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This is episode 45, and this is the story Madame de Brinvilliers. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. This next series of episodes are going to progress a little bit differently than I've done before. I usually try to alternate episodes, doing a true crime episode, then an unexplained episode, then another true crime, another unexplained, and on and on. I haven't necessarily always done the best job of alternating those, but, well, I try. So, this is a true crime episode, but the conclusion of this story progresses naturally into the next episodes. So they're probably going to be a multi-part one, but I'm not necessarily sure how many parts that'll be. That story is very, very complicated. So, well on with this story. Marie-Madeleine Marguerite d'Albray was born since 1630 in Paris to Anton Drew d'Albray, who was the civil lieutenant of Paris and as such, one of the most prominent legal officials in the city. A dark-haired, blue-eyed woman In 1651, she married Antoine Gobelin, an officer in the French cavalry. He was a descendant of Jehan Gobelin, a wealthy textile manufacturer, founded of the Gobelin's manufactory in Paris, and by the time of Louis XIV, the company was one of the principal suppliers of upholstery to the royal court. In addition, his father was president of the Chamber of Accounts, so to the wealth generated by his ancestors, was added that of his father, who oversaw much of the business in the city. When combined with the Dalbray fortunes, the Gobelins were quite wealthy indeed. Wealthy enough that the former Gobelin fiefdom, Brunvilliers, was elevated to a marquisate. But the scribe misspelled the name when doing the paperwork, and so it became known as Brunvilliers, 
1659, Antoine met another soldier named Jean-Baptiste Gaudin de Saint-Croix. Antoine asked Saint-Croix to stay at the Gobelin house on Rue Neuve-Saint-Paul, which is now the Rue Charles V. For whatever purpose, I'm not certain, Saint-Croix doesn't appear to have been homeless, as both the Gobelins were known to fairly routinely have affairs, and Antoine was a loose, dissipated character. One wonders whether he installed Saint-Croix in, in the home as a means of keeping his wife company while he was off on military assignment. In, all, in any case, this was to be a mistake, though. For it was said of Saint-Croix that beneath the appearance of a wise and good-natured man, he concealed a most black and detestable soul. A lawyer who represented Pierre-Louis Reich de Penaultier at the end of this affair said of Saint-Croix that though in poverty and distress, he had a rare and singular genius. His countenance was prepossessing and displayed much intelligence. This he possessed to such a degree that he gave universal pleasure. His happiness was to be found in the happiness of others. He entered into a religious scheme with as much joy as he listened and agreed to, to a suggestion for a crime. Keenly alive to insults, susceptible of love, and in love jealous even to jealous to fury, even of the persons upon whom public debauchery gave rights which were not unknown to him. His expenses were frightful, and they were supported by no regular employment. Indeed, his soul prostituted itself to every kind of crime. He dabbled in outward forms of piety, and it, is, it has been said that he wrote books of religion. He spoke divinely of the God in whom he did not believe, and assisted by this mask of piety which he never took off except with his friends, he seems to have participated in good deeds, whilst in reality he was immersed in wickedness. Whatever Antoine's motivations may have been, it was said that the chagrin the chagrin with which Madame de Brinvilliers endured the infidelities of her husband, seconded by the attractive personality of St. Croix, gave her no time to breathe, which, of course, is 17th century metaphor for they began to have an affair. Not only that, but Madame de Brinvilliers was, was notoriously bad with money, and her lover was no better. He was a notorious spendthrift, and Marie Madeleine freely gave him money. It was said that quickly... He completed the ruination of her affairs, which her husband had already done much to advance. In fact, she herself, in the coming trial, said, I accuse myself of having given a great deal of my wealth to this man, and he ruined me. Drew Dalbray, however, as well as Marie Madeline's brothers, was aware of the affair and disapproved of the way his daughter was conducting herself. She declined to break off the affair, and so Dalbray remedied the situation in the manner that inconvenient people have been disposed of throughout history. He trumped up some charges, and on March 10, 1663, had St. Croix arrested and imprisoned in the Bastille, the famous castle-like prison that fell in the first days of the French Revolution 120 years later. Not only that, but he was arrested under a letter de cachet, which essentially invoked the authority of the king himself, which ensured that there was little anyone could do about it. While there, St. Croix reportedly made the acquaintance of a man named variously Exili or Aguidi. Exili was an Italian and was an associate of the former Queen Christina of Sweden, who had by that point abdicated her throne. However, 
His presence in Paris had become known to Louis XIV, who was none too fond of Christina due to her execution in 1657 of a man named Monaldeschi, and desirous to know why the Italian was present, had him arrested. Formerly, when in Italy before coming into the service of Christina, Exili had another sort of notoriety. Another rumor, which may be true, said that in Rome he had been engaged as a poisoner by that Madame Olympia who was practically queen of the papal city under Pope Innocent X, and that by the exercise of his peculiar talents, he had been the cause of some 150 deaths through whose inheritances the lady had been greatly enriched. By Madame Olympia is meant Olympia Madelcini, also known as Olympia Pamphili, sister-in-law of Pope Innocent X. She was known to have a great deal of influence over her brother-in-law. Also rumored, though it was called certain by Montague Summers, was some relationship between himself and the poisoning syndicates run by the Sicilians Giulia Tofana and Hieronima Spara in the 1650s. These rumors may be true, or may not. We just don't know. The fact is, little is actually known of the man, save for the fact that he was Italian. And in fact, whether he actually even had any involvement in this affair, beyond the accusations of the two guilty parties, is, is likewise unknown. Either way, St. Croix was, was released from the Bastille in May, and de Brinvilliers was livid. One should never annoy anybody, she said. If St. Croix had not been put in the Bastille, perhaps nothing would have happened. It seems St. Croix made at least a cursory effort to be more respectable, or at least to appear so, after his release. He married, presumably into some degree of wealth, as he now possessed a sizable home, with servants, and an attendant or steward. Most relevant among his servants to this story were one named George, and one named La Chaussée. It was rumored that St. Croix was performing alchemical experiments in his house in Place Maubert. Others said he was engaged in counterfeiting, rather than alchemy. The rumor, according to Brinvilliers, was that once it released, Exili stayed at the other man's house for several weeks, teaching him of poison-making. Then St. Croix paid a large sum of money for Exili's poison recipe. However, this seems unlikely to be the case, for on July 27, 1663, a letter was received bearing the seal of the king. Having agreed to allow the person named Aguidi to leave my chateau of the Bastille to go to England according to his desire, and giving now the captain of the watch of my good city of Paris to have him accompanied to Calais, I have written this letter to let you know that as soon as you receive it, you are to hand over to the captain of the watch, or whoever presents this letter to you, the aforesaid Aguidi, without difficulty or delay. So basically, immediately upon Exili's release, he promptly left France, allowing no time for the supposed six weeks he supposedly spent in the company of St. Croix. Sometimes, de Brinvilliers claimed that she and her paramour had the aid of Christopher Glaser, a Swiss physician and chemist who was living and working in Paris, where he was apothecary to the king. St. Croix told her that Glaser had gone to Florence to learn the finest and most subtle poisons. In all likelihood, however, the two had no accomplices in the matter, in which they were soon embroiled. The grudge she bore her family at St. Croix's imprisonment, combined with her shaky financial situation, led the two to hatch a plan. To poison her father and brothers 
and claim the funds that would be inherited from them. To facilitate that, Madame de Brinvilliers installed a servant in her father's household. This servant began the, po the process of poisoning him slowly. A popular rumor, likely unfounded, states that upon conceiving this plan, de Brinvilliers began testing poisons on patients at the Hotel Du. The father becoming ill, tormented by extraordinary fits of vomiting, inconceivable stomach pains, and a strange burning in the entrails, he went to his country estate in Picardy, some 45 miles northeast of Paris, near the city of Compiègne, in order to, re in order to rehabilitate. De Brinvilliers joined him, as she and her father were by this time reconciled. But his health did not improve, and he returned to Paris to be near the best doctors possible. On September 10, 1666, his eldest son, Antoine d'Aubray d'Aufaymont, wrote a letter to Jean-Baptiste Colbert, asking for a leave of absence to be with his ailing father. But that same, that same day, Antoine Drew d'Aubray died. De Brinvilliers was to later admit poisoning her father with her own hands 28 or 30 times while at the manor, accounting for his failure to improve. By September 12th, the son wrote Colbert again asking for an audience with King Louis XIV to discuss inheritance of his father's title. Though the grief of the death of Monsieur the civil lieutenant which came to us last evening has taken from me the liberty of thinking of any business, it still reminds me that I have my duty. Monsieur, the two days' leave that I asked for to assist my father expires today. If the extreme disorder of my affairs permit, I will leave tomorrow to take up my office. But I do not wish to go immediately if you will grant me the honor to render you my very humble respects, and to make a reverence to his majesty if it be agreeable. This I ask for extremely, Monsieur. Let me know your will, and I will execute it always, with the last attachment. So he did, and Antoine the son was the new civil lieutenant of Paris. With the death of the father, de Brinvilliers inherited a great deal of money. The death was deemed due to natural causes, and emboldened as she was, by having not only gotten away with murder, but having successfully achieved the goals of said murder, the noblewoman continued her decadent lifestyle. Continuing her affair with St. Croix, who she later came to admit was father of two of her children, she also began an affair with the Marquis de Nadilac, another officer in the army and her husband's cousin, and even, according to her, with her own cousin as well. She stabbed her husband's mistress and began to fight with St. Croix, declaring him unfaithful, which is really very ironic when you think about it. Within a few years, she had managed to burn through the inheritance received from her father's estate, and in 1670, some property belonging to her and her husband was to be sold by the order of the court. The property, however, mysteriously burned before it could be sold. She even planned to poison her own daughter, and actually did deliver several doses of the poison, but thought better of it and gave her an antidote. Money was again needed, so she began to fix her eyes on her brothers. One was inheritor to the father's title as previously stated, and the other was a member of the Parisian parliament. She had previously attempted to have her, her elder brother assassinated back while the father was still alive. Family relations seemed to have improved somewhat following the father's death, 
but soon they soured again, and she resolved on fresh poisonings so as not to lose the fruits of the first. Both brothers lived together, the younger needing a manservant. His sister recommended someone she knew, Jean Hamelin, also known as La Chaussée, one of the servants of St. Croix. One day soon after his appointment to the Dalbray household, Antoine told his younger brother, I believe your servant's trying to poison me, after he noted that his wine had an odd metallic flavor. When his secretary tasted a bit of the wine, he said he believed it was vitriol, which is an old-fashioned word for any of a number of sulfur compounds. La Chaussée, for his part, blamed another servant who had been taking some medicine earlier that day. He took the glass and dumped out the wine, and the elder brother was none the wiser. Around Easter 1670, the brothers d'Albray went to their country estate at Villacroix, southwest of Paris some miles beyond Versailles. In what would prove to be a fateful decision, with them came La Chaussée. He soon, be he soon managed to worm his way into the confidences of the other servants, performing jobs that he didn't really need to. One evening, he assisted in the kitchens, although yet again, he didn't need to. After dinner that evening, the elder Dalbray fell ill with exactly the same symptoms as his father. He died on April 16th, attended on his deathbed by who else but La Chaussée. His death was deemed, non-committally, as having resulted from some malignant humor. Seven other people fell ill as well, but none of them died. Within only a short time, the other of the Dalbray brothers also fell ill, again with the same symptoms as his father and brother, and again attended by La Chaussée on his deathbed. The brother felt that he was such a good servant, in fact, that he actually left him a sum of money in his will. And when he died, the entire fortunes of the Dalbrays were split between Antoine's widow, Marie Terrasse, the younger sister, and de Brunvilliers. It should come as little surprise that the widow and the sister were the next to be targeted, but, thankfully, by this point the authorities were beginning to suspect poison. Four men conducted the autopsy and documented the condition of the body well. They noted that the stomach and liver were blackened and gangrenous, that the intestines appeared dried out and seemed to have begun almost to disintegrate. This time, it was ruled that such alteration and corruption of the aforesaid parts could result only from poison or by some extraordinarily malignant humor. Marie Madeleine's husband was being poisoned as well. As Madame de Sévigny said, Madame de Brinvilliers wanted to marry St. Croix. With that intention, she often gave her husband poison. St. Croix, not desiring so wicked a woman for his wife, gave antidotes to the poor husband, with the result that, shuttlecocked about in this manner five or six times, now poisoned, now unpoisoned, he still remained alive. Antoine must have begin, begun to suspect either that he was being poisoned, or that his wife's relatives were being poisoned, or possibly both, and he took precautions. He watched carefully who prepared his food, consistently reused the same cups, and drank quantities of milk, which was rumored to work as an antidote for poison. The efficacy of this is still controversial. It seems that it might slow the absorption of poison, but not necessarily completely neutralize it. At this point, it was now July 30th, 1672, something unforeseen took place, and St. Croix died. 
It was popularly rumored that in preparation of the poisons he supplied to Brinvilliers, he had accidentally poisoned himself, although it actually seems pretty clear that he died of tuberculosis, from which he was known to suffer. Notwithstanding any money he may have come into possession of, St. Croix had died in debt, and his properties were being reclaimed by the banks. On August 11th, as his workshop in the Place Maubert was being searched, a small box was discovered. Attached was a letter, I very humbly beg those persons, into whose hand this casket falls, to be good enough to return it to, to Madame the Marquise de Brinvilliers, living in the Rio Neuve St. Paul, as all, that it as all that it contains concerns her alone, and apart from this, there is not nothing in it of utility to anyone in the world. And in the case that she should have predeceased me, everything in it is to be burnt without examination, and if anyone pretends ignorance of, of this wish, I swear by the God I worship, and upon all that is most sacred, that I say nothing but the truth. Written at Paris, on the afternoon of May 25th, 1670. The box contained a number of vials and bottles, as well as a promissory note from de Brinvilliers, and the amount of 30,000 livres. Also, there were several love letters, in one of which the noblewoman threatened suicide. Some of the poisons were revealed to be corrosive sublimate, vitriol, antimony, and opium. Two of the vials were given to a doctor named Jean Moreau, who could not identify the contents, save that they were some sort of poison. This cunning poison evades all researches, he said. The press, meanwhile, wryly commented that you should believe doctors and always take their word for it when they admit their ignorance. At this time, realizing that the jig was up, Madame de Brinvilliers fled the country. After attempting to reclaim 1,700 livres, which he claimed he was owed by St. Croix, and arousing the suspicions of the police, La Chaussée in turn vanished. On, de, on September 4, 1672, at one in the morning, policeman Thomas Rainier found and arrested La Chaussée. He had in his possession some Cypriot vitriol, or, to use modern modern terminology, copper sulfate, which he claimed was used to stop bleeding in his work as a barber. Copper sulfate is actually today used as a fungicide and herbicide, so that's pretty unlikely that that's actually what he used it for. La Chaussée had been staying with and working for a barber in the Rue de Grenelle. After his arrest, the servant said that before his death, St. Croix had been attempting to secure for him an appointment in the royal household as cupbearer which, given what we now know about him, is certainly ominous. In his rooms at the barber's was found a packet of white powder, which he claimed was a remedy for skin disease. At the eventual trial, another servant named Louis Rideau said that when he asked La Chaussée about the elder Dalbray brother, he received the reply, The old devil languishes long enough. He gives us plenty of trouble. I can't say when he'll die. For his part, La Chaussée would admit, would admit to nothing, but under torture, admitted that he had poisoned the brothers Dalbray, that the poison was given to him by St. Croix, and that the poison in turn was given to St. Croix by de Brinvilliers. On March 24, 1673, La Chaussée was found guilty and sentenced to be broken on the wheel, an old form of torture, and usually execution, in which the condemned was attached to a wheel and their limbs broken with a hammer or iron club. 
braking on the wheel was widely used throughout Europe. Sometimes they were executed right out, sometimes they lingered for hours or even days before dying. In order to round up several other people was issued. The court, having considered the, the report of the examination and the execution on the 24th of the present month of 1673, containing the declaration and confession of, of Jean Amelin, called La Chaussée, orders that the following persons, namely Belgis, Martin, Poitaven, Olivier, the father Varin, the wife of Guaisden, the hairdresser, do appear before the court to be interrogated concerning the matter. It also orders that the decree of arrest issued against LaPierre, and that the decree requiring Penaltier to appear, both issued by the Lieutenant of Criminal Affairs, be forthwith executed. All were examined, and little of interest learnt. Pierre-Louis Roich de Penaltier, named in some documents found in the box in St. Croix's home, said that he had loaned money to him and de Brunvillier on several occasions. There was an attempt to connect him to the poisonings, saying that he had poisoned the previous receiver, receiver general of the clergy. But though the man's widow tried to involve the king in the affair, the king said, I expect they will do everything that upright men like themselves ought to do, to baffle those of any rank whatsoever who are mixed up in such an evil trade. It was later proven that the man had died of a stomach abscess. King Louis XIV himself was noted on several occasions to be following the case closely, and to have been strongly advocating for the apprehension of the Marquise. Meanwhile, she was hiding in England. An application for extradition was filed, and the English government complied, although they declined to arrest her themselves. However, by the time the French mobilized, she had left England and returned to the European continent, more specifically to the city of Liège. Notwithstanding her care, the French authorities were soon apprised of her return, and arrangements were promptly made with the municipality of that city to permit the agents of the French police to arrest her within the limits of their jurisdiction. De Grey, an officer of the Marais Chaussée, accordingly left Paris for that purpose. On his arrival in Liège, he found that she had sought, sought shelter within the walls of a convent. Here the arm of the law, long as it was said to be, could not reach her. But de Grey was not a man to be baffled, and he resorted to stratagem to accomplish what force could not. Having disguised himself as a priest, he sought admission to the convent, and obtained an interview with La Brinvillier. He said that, being a Frenchman and passing through Liège, he could not leave that city without paying a visit to the lady whose beauty and misfortunes were so celebrated. Her vanity was flattered by the compliment. De Grey saw, to use a vulgar but forcible expression, that he had got on the blind side of her, and he adroitly continued to pour out the language of love and admiration till the deluded Marchionis was thrown completely off her guard. She agreed, without much solicitation, to meet him outside the walls of the convent, where their amorous intrigue might be carried on more conveniently than within. Faithful to her appointment with her, new, with her supposed new lover, she came and found herself not in the embrace of a gallant, but in the custody of a policeman. In April 1676, de Brinvilliers was imprisoned in the conciergerie, and the questioning began. One servant in the household said that, that, that the madame had tried to poison her. Another servant stated that on one occasion the Marquise, hopelessly drunk, 
gestured to a box and said, This is what you need to revenge yourself on your enemies. It is full of inheritances. Yet another said that when she went to fetch the Marquise's earrings, she saw some packets of arsenic on a table. A confession had been found in the convent in Liège where she was found. At this time, even a written confession was usually thought of as inadmissible in court, being presumed to be subject to the law of the confessional. However, when judicial authorities consulted some of the clergy, they replied that since there was no priest present when it was written, this law didn't apply, and it could, indeed, be used against her. On July 13, 1676, one person with whom de Brinvilliers had had an affair, her children's tutor Jean-Baptiste Rioncourt, said that soon after the younger Dalbray brother had died, she had confessed to him that she had poisoned the brother, as well as her other brother and her father. Then she asked him to help her poison her sister and sister-in-law. He refused. She nonetheless invited him to stay with her the following night, but when he arrived, he said he saw St. Croix being hidden. He called out to St. Croix, who emerged before running off. Then de Brunvilliers attacked him and later threatened suicide. On July 16th, she was found guilty and sentenced to be tortured, to have her right hand cut off or parasite, and to be beheaded. She was given water torture, in which a quantity of water is poured into a funnel or horn and then into the condemned's mouth. In the story The Leather Funnel, a ghost story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle quoted in the introduction, the title artifact is the self-same one used during the torture of de Brinvilliers. She met her death at the Place de Grave, the broad square in front of the Hotel de Ville, Paris's city hall, on July 17th. Before her death, she made a fateful pronouncement, which can be seen as, as foreshadowing the events chronicled in the next few episodes. Half of the people of quality are involved in this sort of thing, and I could ruin them if I were to talk. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash dark. Until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.